no destination that's too far and somewhere on the way you might find out who you are live on oh, lucas is a podcast and i Station to station, Lucas and Zach podcast, hand to hand, across the nation. I kind of was betting that we would never do a Rocky IV episode. <laughs> no, we're not going to do a Rocky IV episode. <laughs> um, well, hello, everybody. Welcome to our episode on Borat, gift of court pornographic monkey to Vice Premier Mikhail Pence to make benefit recently diminished nation of Kazakhstan, which is one of the several titles that this movie features throughout its long run. Um, we continue 2020 movies. I'm here, Zach's here, and we have a special guest. The uh, One of the titular Scott from S Some Like It Scott, it's Scott Harvey. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. I don't know what Zach is doing right now. but uh... <laughs> I don't either. Camera. Now I'm all fresh and clean, baby. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for having me. This should be fun. I uh, I guess I'm not tired of talking about 2020 movies yet. Somehow, on Some Like It, Scott, we found a new one to talk about every single week, even in the corona-stricken 2020. Um, it was some dark times with the like streaming back catalog sometimes, but we did it. But this was definitely one of the higher points of 2020. Spoiler alert. If we had to ask you, what was the weirdest, most obscure movie you guys covered? What was like the one you're like, you were sitting there watching and you had that thought in your head of, why on earth am I putting myself through this? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there was like a, anything like super, super obscure, but like there were a few like just, you know, bargain bid Netflix action movies that just did not do it for me. And then we watched the, uh, the musical version of Valley Girl that they did this past year, um, which was something uh I, I we watched it because i mean jessica roth I, I mean i'm a huge happy death day fan and she's the star of the valley girl of the new valley girl adaptation but she also like her boyfriend is played by logan paul in the movie like that logan paul and uh yeah so that should tell you sort of what level the movie is is That's operating hollywood star I, yeah. I Logan's gotta wait for Logan Paul to evolve. He'll be the next Liam Neeson action star. He's gotta wait. Did, did Logan Paul knock anybody out during the performance of Valley Girl? He might have because he plays, of course, like the like douchebag boy. I mean, you know, he's r really typecast, I think. But um, but he there was probably a fight. <laughs> there was probably a fight at some point. But you know, again, very forgettable movie. So. It is always interesting when you go from YouTube star to I've boxed ex NBA athletes in the uh, the span of a year. I can never remember yeah. the two the, the two Pauls always I confuse them they look the same to me, um, which I think is insulting because I think there's like like a four or five year age gap somewhere in there. Um, I know one of them is going to get like maybe die in the next six months. Uh, Floyd Mayweather may literally end his life. Um, that will not end well. I'm just Mayweather. Just he doesn't even throw punches though, right? Like he just plays. He plays defense. But yeah, with, he, here's with, the thing. Uh, he plays defense when he's fighting professional athletes. When right, he's playing, yeah, when he's going against Logan Paul or Jake, he, he's Paul, he's gonna hurt one of them quite badly. That could end up um, very very poorly. Um, this but is not in the outline. I did not support this. Zach, like Zach I would like you to name all your boxing knowledge right now. Name all my boxing knowledge. I don't even know yeah. what that means. There's yeah, gloves. There's a ring. <laughs> uh, people hit each other. It's um, a ring, but it's not down, really yeah. a circle. But you know, it's a weird concept. Yeah. 
the squared ring. Um, is that called a ring? You no, know, it is called it a is. ring. It's just not. It's not circular, which is a weird. Really shapes right now. <laughs> 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 shapes with Zach Ford is the new podcast going to this network. Um, but we're not here to talk boxing. We're here to talk movies. And Zach Ford, what was the last thing you watched on Letterboxd? Um, I watched the new release because um, I'm trying to stay hip and in it and catch a lot of the new releases um, the weekend they come out because it's better than trying to catch up within the year like Luke is trying to watch 80, 20, 20 movies um, within the past two weeks. Um, so I, I watched... Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. I'm not going to get a better name because only good names rhyme. Um, this is Kristen Wiig and Amy Mumolo, who I, by all accounts, are close friends and writing partners. They wrote Bridesmaids together. Um, I believe Amy Mumolo was a writer for SNL while Kristen Wiig was on it. Um, that could be complete false, but I'm allowed to say whatever I want to my podcast. Um, anyways, this is... I mainly want to talk about this because it's kind of a, a reminder of the career that Kristen Wiig could have and maybe should have had. Um, we talked for a long time on past episodes before on how, you know, comedy movies have kind of gone by the way. I think this more specifically, this kind of like character driven, silly comedies really only get made by Andy Samberg anymore. Um, and don't really exist, but that's what Chris and Rig was kind of born to play. Because in Barbara Star, this is basically taking one of her wacky SNL characters for the first time and, and making a movie around it. It's not an SNL character, but it's in the same um, wavelength as that. Uh, the the chemistry between the two definitely shows that they they probably have been um, you know working not necessarily in these characters, but within these bits and talking like Midwestern. Um, girls all the time as friends because um, it, 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 the timing is so down pat. Um, I saw some someone, I think Josh Larson on Letterboxd, um, called it like a, a one singular performance rather than two performances, and that, that captures it pretty perfectly. Um, but I, I, I couldn't think the whole time that I just wish that she would have got a chance to create more characters because there's really like a, a real Austin Powers energy to it. And you can see in some way Chris and Rick having a Mike Myers type career where she can just, you know, ha have, you know, all the say to get whatever character driven movie she wanted to be made, but it just didn't happen. I mean, she chose her path with Bridesmaids in a way, which is more Judd Apatow, which was, is a great movie, but just didn't have the, the, the fruit that I feel like it should have had. Scott, have you seen this movie? I have not. Um... I saw the trailer for it like, you know, ages ago, 2020, whatever. It was probably supposed to come out a, a while back. I didn't even realize it was coming out this week. And then all of a sudden I just saw people's reviews start popping up on um, on Letterboxd. And yeah, they seem to be all over the map, which is not surprising after the trailer. It just looks like the type of thing you, you either like to completely go with its aesthetic or you don't. But yeah, I'm not sure that this one's for me. We, we may talk about this, but like, this is this is gonna sound like a super broad statement, but like mainstream comedies, like uh, studio comedies, are like not just in general. There are very few that actually resonate with me um, nowadays. Uh, so, and th this one does look a little bit more offbeat, I guess, um, and maybe more in the vein of like a MacGruber or something, which has become like a cult hit in recent years. But yeah, I don't know um, when I'll be giving this one a chance. What do you think about the career? It's much more in the pop star kind of vein as far as like the, yeah. the drug density and the silliness of it all. But. What about Wig's career? Because Zach was talking about her. She's a, I feel like she has done some comedies, 
but I feel like they've almost all failed since Bridesmaids. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm having trouble even thinking of another one besides Bridesmaids, to be honest. Well, Let's... you've got um, Masterminds, which was terrible. Oh, uh, yeah. Zoolander 2. She was in Sausage Party. Party. Wonder Woman 1984 was hilarious, but not for the right reasons. <laughs> those aren't Chris and Rigg driven movies. Those are Chris and Rigg appearing in someone else's movies. Yeah. I mean, some some of them are more wig driven. She has just a, you know, as you were talking about her, I was, I pulled up her, like her career. And um, I feel like in some ways her biggest successes since Bridesmaids have been in dramas and playing more serious characters or playing the lighthearted moments in more serious movies. Um I think she just falls into the classic trap that female comedians have, where it is really hard as a female comedian, even if you have a really great performance in one movie like Bridesmaids, to just get consistently good product projects going forward. You know, Tiffany Haddish is another example that she has this great performance in Girls Trip, and what has she got since then? Crap um, vehicle after crap vehicle. And, you know, it is really hard um, for the male comedians, let alone the female comedians, even harder for them to, you know, maintain any sort of run in comedy. They, they just get stuck with too many crap projects so quickly. I think what might be the key is that we just need the right creative partners. We need directors that really want to focus on comedy because even we get um, what's his face, Adam McKay, who yeah, you know, because Will Ferrell partnered up with the right creative mind to team up with, but then he strays away from comedy. It's just people are more interested in making other things and not the front comedies anymore. Yeah, so I know not the performers we're missing; it's the directors and. And creative minds, I think that would They're like yeah. awards chasing to some extent, right? Because yeah. comedies aren't going to get awards. Something. I mean, that's and Adam McKay. You know, he he went to the Big Short and won an Oscar immediately. So, by the way, this is a um, it's a Gloria Sanchez is what it got credited as. I don't know, maybe because it was female led, but not Gary Sanchez. The logo is like Gloria Sanchez. I need to. Yeah, I believe it's female. If it's female led, they call it Gloria Sanchez, but it's the same production company. Yeah. Uh, Scott, what's your last movie? So right before this, I finished watching. I started last night. I wanted to watch a movie, a, a love movie, right? Because it was Valentine's Day. Um, so I was choosing between a couple. I thought about watching Before Sunrise or About Time, which are like some of my favorite romance stuff. But I watched uh, instead a movie that definitely is about love, but not necessarily a romance movie, but my, my, this is going to be controversial, but my favorite Christopher Nolan movie, which is Interstellar. Um, I watched um, between last night and uh, today. It is a long movie, um, but of course I've seen it before. Um, I actually just discovered it last year. I discovered, I mean, as people haven't known about it, but I watched it for the first time last year um, and was really surprised by it just because I think it has so much more heart than a lot of Nolan's movies do. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I'm still kind of blown away by it. This is like my third or fourth watch now. And um, it's quickly rising up my like top 100 all time list. Um, I think um, it's, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of like sci-fi movies that have like compassionate sci-fi movies, which I think this is. And like, Robert Zemeckis's Contact is another one of my favorites. And this is like a good companion piece to Contact, I think, because it's like they're both sort of movies about like explaining the point where science ends, right? Where you get to a point where science can't explain something that has happened. And it's like in Contact, it's about like religion and faith. And here it's about 
love and this, you know, sort of supernatural force transcending, you know, science, which I, I don't know, as someone who is not a big science person and like, you know, all of the technical stuff tends to go over my head. I think I resonate more with the like, you know, direct emotional stuff that's going on in those types of movies. So I know, I know uh, everyone doesn't love it, but um, I, it's my favorite Nolan. I think it's amazing. I mean, join the club. I am also uh, my favorite Nolan is also controversial. I am a Dunk, I am a Dunkirk stand. That's yeah, my that's favorite. one of my that's one of my favorites as well. I think it's fantastic. And I I don't to this day do not understand the criticism of like I don't connect with anyone. I'm like I don't understand how you cannot connect with people alone in the ocean or in a boat or just like the humanity, the frailty of humanity that that movie just exposes. Those last part. those last five minutes are like man, they they get you every single time like the you know emotional in the they they get you in the feels like i don't i don't get what people why i'm with you i don't get why people you know say they can't connect really you don't know what their dog's name was when they were a little boy so is there even any (laughs) yeah i back to dunk to back to interstellar i actually am also a fan of this movie not my favorite nolan i it's probably like six or something but i think it does get um I think people love to – there's something about movies that have a – like a simple message is not necessarily a bad thing. And the idea of Interstellar being about love at the end is not necessarily like – it gets mocked a lot because it's like, oh, love was the end. Like I don't – I think that sometimes we ignore how powerful a simple message like that is um, in favor. And we're like, why doesn't Nolan do his Inception tenant thing where there's like 19 answers and – I find those movies colder and less enjoyable than something like Interstellar. Um, I, and, and of course, the scene where time, where they have they come back to the ship and years have passed is amazing. And yeah, the probably McCon- home, yeah. and probably McConaughey's best work ever on screen. And this mm-hmm. is talking about a guy who won an Oscar. He's definitely better in that scene than he ever was in Dallas Buyers Club. And and also, you know, the other problem that Nolan has a lot of times is he can't write good female characters. But I think this movie. I yeah. think that Dr. Brand, Anne Hathaway's character, and Jessica Chastain, Murph, are like two of the best, if not best, female characters in, in Nolan's oeuvre. So. And randomly, um, McConaughey's son is played by two incredibly famous actors before they became like, because it's it's Chalamet and Affleck yeah, the, just randomly playing the same character in a movie. The hor- horrified, like expressions of the women on film Twitter who have like such crushes on Timothy Chalamet when all of a sudden he grows up to become Casey Affleck is one of the funnier things to come out of this movie. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's a good interesting question is like, you look at 20 years from now, who's the better actor? I think I might still take Affleck, but uh, the problem, problematic, the problem, the, I'm a very, I don't know. Big fan, big fan of it as an actor, and he's he is a problematic. Uh, we we have been known on this as we under, we acknowledge the problematic character of Casey Affleck, but as an actor, he rules. We're big fans. <laughs> I mean, fair. <laughs> Jack, do you have a take on Interstellar? Um, theoretically, I really like it. I don't <laughs> remember too much because this was like thousands of years ago. I, I seen it. I saw in theaters when it came out. This was like my first experiment of I was going to go in real blind. Like I ignored any trailers. I ignored any talk. I just saw like the original poster or like the teaser trailer, and I was like, I'm going to try not to find out anything as I can because I was like so upset about finding too much about Inception. I, I wish I went completely blind to that. Um, 
So it, it was interesting. I, I, I like Scott, um, the sci-fi movies I go to are the ones that wear their heart in the sleeves. So I like hard in the sleeve, emotional sci-fis, uh, like a rival um, that, that, that have a way for me to connect with. So that's why the theory, I love it. I just need to rewatch it, especially like that kind of movie when you're so busy with the puzzle box of it the first time and your mind's just trying to figure it out. It's nice to get a second time, just kind of let it wash over you. Um, so. Yeah, totally. Oh, so okay. My last movie was I finally caught up with uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven, which is it's a weird movie to talk about because I feel like when you're watching it, the experience of watching it is it, it's very enjoyable, it's fun. Um, you know, everyone's got their their favorite performance in it. I stand Mark Rylance. I think he's the best performance yeah. in the entire film. I think he absolutely rules. I think he's also the most complex character because he's not a character we're supposed to root for or root against. And almost every other character in the film is you root for or against him. And it's very clearly that I do think the movie really suffers because um, Sorkin makes it too easy. He makes the bad guys really bad, except for the random George Joseph Gordon-Levitt is supposed supposed to like him although there's no idea why we're supposed to like him his face turn at the end is a little much yeah yeah he's like really sympathetic through the entire movie but then there's no reason for him to be sympathetic um i just think the movie fails because at times because they make it too simple this movie should be more complicated it should be about the struggle of the criminal justice system and the way strings get pulled and instead you just have a movie where the judge is just blatantly evil at every single moment and so blatantly evil to the point where, and I'm not pretending he's not evil. If you look up this guy in real life, yeah, a lot of that stuff happened. One of the worst judges ever, like ridiculously bad. He had a billion complaints against him before this. Um, Within the next 10 years, he literally, they literally like don't give him cases anymore. He's not competent. And like on a level of he's a bad judge and he might not mentally all be there. Um, it's just an inconsistent movie. It feels like I, I, as I, my analogy I thought of after it was like, it's like white bread, like you enjoy eating it, but when you're done, it has no lasting impact on you, you and you're change that ready now. to eat again soon. What? <laughs> white bread. No one likes eating white bread. It's not a thing. Not just like plain white bread. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like eating plain white bread. Don't realize that's bad for them, which actually now it is a good metaphor for Childish by Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> you don't realize how gross it is. It's also funny because we talked a couple weeks ago about Sully, and I was talking about how that movie is really tainted by Eastwood's um, conservative, anti-oversight, anti-government politics. And in some ways, this movie feels tainted by Sorkin's more liberal politics, that it is so um, blatant that you're supposed to support the people on trial and be against the people prosecuting them to the point where it loses the complexity you want from a movie like this. I want to watch a movie like this and try to figure out for myself who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And, um, or even just have people be shades of gray. And this movie kind of plays it as good versus evil in a way that I think really takes away from the, the message of the film. I also saw a very funny review on Letterboxd, which is that somebody said, uh, Aaron Sorkin is too good of a writer to work with as shitty of a director as Aaron Sorkin. Um, which sort of does feel true at points. Like the writing is a good part of this and he is a very flat director, even in even in the moments I like. But he also just needs, sorry, he needs somebody to say no to him. He needs a director to yeah. kind of balance him out. Yeah. And specifically like, someone with completely different 
you know, takes. I feel like Fincher and Boyle specifically work on different levels to, to, to just kind of bring him down to earth a little bit. Yeah, somebody has to rein in his, like, yeah. you know, more negative. I mean, I actually quite like Molly's game. I don't think that there, that direction, the direction of that movie is too problematic. But yeah, I mean, I think the ending of Trial of the Chicago 7 makes me think in the, so in A Few Good Men, right, which is my favorite mm-hmm. movie, my number one movie of all time. Um, the original script at the very end. Um, one of the things I've always liked about the movie is that the, uh, Tom Cruise and Demi Moore's characters don't have a romance in the movie. It's just like professional respect that they have for each other. And But in the original script that Sorkin wrote um, at the very end, like they'd like kiss in the courtroom. And it's like after the trial is over, like it's this obs- insane like scene. Like you're like, what? Like this was in the, I, I can't, I still remember like how traumatized I was when I read that from the original script. But obviously Rob Reiner, you know, being the competent director that he is came in and was like, no, we're not going to do this. And instead he made, again, my favorite movie of all time. So he just needs somebody like, yeah, these directors to rein him in because, you know, when he, when he does, he makes some of the you know most rewatchable, quotable movies of all time, in my opinion. So. It is a goofy, it, Chicago, Trial of the Chicago 7 has a very goofy final moment. Oh, um, yeah. And it's like, well, it's also nonsensical because the story is they did get sentenced. They were yeah, found it's guilty. Not the end. Mm-hmm. He's like stopping at the beginning and saying, this is good enough. Right. It, it's so weird because the real story of the trial of Chicago 7 is they get sentenced. They go to appeals court. The appeal court goes, yeah, the judge was awful and like blatantly um, against you guys to the point where an appeals court who don't necessarily love to overturn decisions was like, uh, yeah, we're overturning that like completely. He, and then like, they don't really even, they touch on it throughout the movie, but there's a ridiculous amount of contempt charges filed in that case. Like, so Scott, you're a lawyer. That is not normal, Uh-oh. right? That's not normal, right? Contempt charges against who are, are you saying? No, against any, like, I can't, I, I mean, I'm not, I just, 14 against the lawyer, eight against yeah, member, like multiple, yeah. That just feels ridiculous to the point of um, like it's laughable, but they yeah, also I mean, the judge is kind of laughable. Sometimes those things are just done to antagonize people. But I mean, this was this was a show trial, right? This was like you know they they really amped up the drama in real life because the stakes were so high because everyone was watching this thing. So when you when you let trials become an entertainment more than an administration of justice, then you're always going to run into those issues of, I think, people doing unethical things, lawyers, judges, whoever, because they feel like the cameras are on that, whatever. It does feel so ridiculous to the point where, like, if this was a fictional story you had wrote, um, somebody would look at your script and go, this isn't believable. This would never mm-hmm. happen in real. Like, they'd be like, he would have, he would have, you know, cleared the courtroom. He would have done something <laughs> at some point to stop, you know, ridiculousness from happening. Um, Michael Keaton's fun. I like Keaton in the movie. Zach, do you like this movie? No? Yes? I, I, I feel like I'm on the same level as you. Like, th- there's just moments that are entertaining that, that keep you engaged. But if you think about it for too much afterwards, it starts to get um, a little rotten. Um, I would say I was the one one person. I was like, you know, who, who's a guy? This is Eddie Redmayne. I, I've been like this weird Eddie Redmayne defender because I also like theory of everything more than most people. Um, Scott Harvey disappears. Like, fuck the Redmayne. Um <laughs> 
Uh, I, I, I don't remember why I was so struck by his performance. I feel like they're, I mean, I don't like what they do with the character and the way they use him, um, you know, at the end. But I feel like he somehow just has the bravura that I didn't expect him to have. He almost like takes the reins of the movie. Um, I, I, th- I feel like there's a nobility that he was able to add to that, that, that character. Awesome. I'm no, sorry. it's okay. I will never bring a Betty Redmayne again. <laughs> I promise. I, I don't like him as an actor, so if that's what you were talking about when I dropped, that is kind of fitting. Yeah, okay. He is legitimately one of the. He's so he's very weird. Like to me, he he's not I think that's terrible. Why I like him. he's not terrible, but to me, he does not fit in any movie based in the real world. Oh, yeah. Like, I, like weirdly, I about Rami Rami Malek now, especially after watching the little things where he just like talks out of. I don't even know exactly what he's doing with his mouth to speak, but like oh, he cannot deliver a line like a normal human being. We have a year until we do 2021, but we're just doing an episode on Rami Malik. <laughs> <laughs> it's his jaw. I swear it's his jaw. I don't know. It's so strange. I, so I'm, I'm still convinced he was a serial killer in this movie. No spoilers, but he, he did it. <laughs> no one can make eyes like that and not be the serial killer. Yeah. Zach, what's the performance you are? What's your what's your performance you're standing for in Trial of Chicago Seven? I told you, it's Eddie Redmayne. You're really Eddie Redmayne. Yeah. Wow. And he's also the lead, and I will fight that he's the lead of the movie. It is is the story arc that matters. That they, that that's, that's the story that Sorkin cares about at least. Maybe, I think Rylance and I'm gonna butcher this name. Yaya Abdul Mateen are the two performances yeah. that really stand out. Um, I think yeah. Joseph Gordon Levitt. I'm starting to realize this sort of disappeared from acting for a reason in that he's not very good in movies and kind of the more I re-examine his old performance, I was like, he's not very good in movies, is he? Mm. And then you got like the the rest of the cast is, um, I don't like Jeremy Strong. Jeremy Strong is weird and kind of a, Jeremy Strong hilariously standing next to Sacha Baron Cohen is the character that looks like the joke character from a parody movie of this trial. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as two novel TV yeah. watchers, we're missing out on Jeremy Strong, probably from Secession. So, so for me, it's primarily like this and the Gentleman from last year, which are both, I think, bad performances <laughs> in the same way. As he takes like one character trait and like throws it kind of over the top, and there's yeah. no he he does not make three dimen- or four dimensional characters at all in these movies. Yeah. yeah. So that's Trial of the Chicago Seven that I watched. You know, four months after it came out. Because weirdly, having more stuff available to me makes me less likely to watch it. Was it really many people? I think it was October, right? Sure. It may have been. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. It just seems like yep. time. October 16th? Seems yeah. like it's yeah. well, I mean, just not to diverge too much, but in life in COVID, every yeah. week feels like uh, simultaneously seven seconds and seven years. Yeah. Um, and I forget which day it is randomly, you know. Like, I've legitimately been four or five days off. Like, I thought it was like a Friday and it was actually like a Tuesday. Like, it's, it's it can get bad at points. Because, you know, every day feels exactly the same. There's there's not a lot of um, day-to-day change. Mm-hmm. With that being said, let's move on to our main discussion, which is, of course, Borat, subsequent movie film. I'd like to thank the um, director and Sacha Baron Cohen for giving us a normal title to say rather than having to. <laughs> it is funny. During the film, they obviously change the title like four times, and then the movie gets released with Borat's subsequent movie film. 
Um, do you think that they should have named it Boris's subsequent movie film and then like the final title or then the second title or and just put all the alternate titles in the actual title? <laughs> See, I think that the movie gets as a joke how ridiculous the first yeah. title was, which is why they intentionally change it several times throughout the film every time this narrative changes. Like, I think Wait, they bought into the, the movie joke. knows it's making a joke. I would never would have guessed. It's all <laughs> accidental. Anyway. I do want to start this with this uh, discussion it, with um, the original Borat and start with you, Scott. Um, what was your opinion of um, the original Borat, either when it came out initially or when um, or going into the second movie? Yeah, well, I mean, going back to what I was saying earlier about not really being a mainstream comedy fan, like. I literally had not watched Borat until last year. Um, and I, uh, I like, you know, the trailer for this one came out and people were making a big deal about it. And I was like, okay, whatever. Like I never, you know, cared about the first Borat. And then, you know, it ended up, we were going to do, we were going to talk about the second Borat for my podcast or something like it's mm. not. And so I was like, well, I guess I better go watch the first one. And I started watching it and I was like, I don't, I don't think, like, I'm sure I knew at some point, like when it came out, but when I was watching it, I feel like I never really knew exactly what Borat was. Like I knew it was a mockumentary, but when I think of like a mockumentary, I think of like the Christopher Guest or like this is Spinal Tap or something like that, where it's, it's all state, like it's all fictional, right? Like I, I didn't realize, I, I, I don't think I realized, or if I did, I had forgotten that he's like actually interacting with real people to some degree in um, the movie. So like I, you know, I came in really cold, obviously to the first Borat. And I mean, it has some sequences that absolutely kill um, and that are hilarious. I think the rodeo is like the standout one for me from the first movie, I think is so funny, but, um, but on the whole, especially after watching this movie, I think my main take is just like, it feels like a lot of, it just feels like sketches, right? It just feels like a lot of, like a lot of different ideas and jokes and stuff played for shock value and laughs rather than a super cohesive, like, um, you know, series of comedic set pieces with a overarching theme in mind. It just, you know, again, it just feels like, let's see what, you know, we can do. Like that is some of the most shocking stuff. And yeah, of course he reveals like, some prejudices and things like that about you know the american public in the course of doing these gags but it feels like that type those types of revelations were almost like incidental to what he was actually trying to do which was just to make people laugh and be shocked about what he was doing whereas i think this movie is a lot different but we'll get there I'm sure. yeah uh zach same question borat the original yeah, so I, I'm um, a little older than you. I don't know Scott's age. You can keep it to yourself. You, you can have privacy here. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, as a little bit older, I, you know, it just it came out in 2006, right? So I was, you know, 17, um, and Bora was just such a, a, a mega um, big deal within the consciousness, especially for you know teenagers and someone who worked at a movie theater at the time. Um, so of course I had to see it. I was aware of Sasha Baron time i um i've seen some dolly g show i never realized how hard that is to pronounce the ali show um before that so i kind of knew the deal um going in um i think being like the little like asshole i was was like i wasn't gonna love it because other people loved it uh, I'm, I'm getting past that um so i was like a fan at the time i found it really funny but i i've never been someone to 
you know, quote movies um, because I need everyone to be reminded that I was better to this film um, by not quoting it. Um, but but Scott hit it pretty much on the nail. I think um, I do need to rewatch more. I haven't seen it since. But as far as from my my memory of it, this one is much more of a cohesive and thematic piece. I think a little more purpose. I I, I would say kind of still accidentally kind of fell into some of its purpose, um, which is, I think, the magic of what this movie did. It, it like, works with the ever-changing, especially in 20, you know, 20, the ever-changing newscape um, so well to find a, you know, grander idea to kind of connect it all. Um, yeah. Okay, so I watched the first Bora in 2010, did not watch it for 10 years until I reached to watch it before the second one came out. And I think I kind of got stuck in the same trap that a lot of people, I think you guys are also saying, which is that I think I watched the first one and it was just so much of a, oh, people quote this movie constantly. Oh, and people think this movie's hilarious. Also, I don't think, um, was I 15 in 2010? I don't think 15-year-old me understood half the jokes in this movie or why um, anything in this that movie originally was interesting outside of like the craziness. Um, and then I rewatched it and I thought, oh, that actually had a lot more to say than I thought it did. And then um, going to this movie, I was kind of worried because I was like, okay, they're going to do Borat too. And when you start thinking about comedy sequels, you start thinking about, okay, are you going to do exactly the same movie with the character, you know, 14 years later? And that's going to suck because most of the time they do comedy sequels like this, um, they're terrible or they're at least uh, a big step down or highly mediocre. Um I think this movie works for two things. This is my my two thesis statements um, that Zach mentioned. The, the secondary and the smaller one is I think that the reason this movie works is because they waited to a second Republican administration because I think Borat is effective at skewering Republican politics, especially when they're in power, um, because um, sometimes those things look more ludicrous the more they're exposed to the light rather than seen as some kind of subversive undercover. undercover. And I think if you watch the first one, there is some commentary on the Bush administration and their kind of uh, foreign policy and kind of invasion tactics around the globe. And then this movie, obviously, um, I think in some ways unintentionally gets thrown really heavily into the middle of uh, Trump era politics in a way that uh, even the first one isn't. And then secondarily, I think the reason this movie works is because Cohen is smart enough to do two things. One, to realize that you cannot do a movie and pretend that people don't know Borat. Because clearly, um, if you had made a movie, you know, very early on in this movie, he walks around as Borat. And people come up to goes, oh, Borat, high five. Yeah. And the fact that they were smart enough to realize that they could not do that. Because here's the thing. You could have done a movie with Borat and just cut out all the scenes where people came out to him. Um, that movie is significantly less interesting because the awareness of Borat being a thing is what works. And secondary... Cohen is smart enough to and humble enough to pull back and let Bakalova take over. And that's what makes this movie really work is that they, this is not the Borat story. This is the two tower story. And that's why this movie is significantly more nuanced and more complex. I said in my review initially that this movie is probably less funny overall, but much more interesting and more cohesive as a story. That my my two thesis statements right there. Well, I want to um, go off your point of saying that. Of, I mean, of course, he was waiting, waiting for a Republican president to kind of take advantage of. But the smart thing that I think such Baron Cohen does is he doesn't 
like there's some jokes jabbed at, at the present, but it's not really explicitly about the present. They just, mm -hmm. it's more about the, um, the culture and climate that those presents were able to take advantage of. Yes, at yeah, every level of, of society. Yeah, not just yeah. the highest with the president. Like, yeah, it's because it's, work, 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 it's the plastic surgeons and you know all these other people too. Because the first one's Southern complicit. Yeah, the first one's like almost purely about like xenophobia in my memory and the xenophobia that mm -hmm. that Bush was able to profit of, um, you know, post 9-11. and then this is about um, sexism and conspiratorial thought that that Trump was able to, to you know benefit from throughout this presidency as well. So. Yeah, yeah. It really is about the entire society because um, you could have done this movie during an Obama administration, except um, people would have felt less open with these views. Because if you live in a world where it's the Obama Justice Department, you probably feel less comfortable saying, yes, I will write, the Jews will not overtake us on a cake, hmm. or I will openly ignore questions of incest during a discussion of abortion. Those are things that are very much, I think, touched on by the fact that you have at least the hint of your government being less likely to come after you for saying stuff like that. That stuff definitely still would have happened. We just, in a Obama era, we just try to ignore that that still existed. No, no, it would have still existed, but it would have been – there was – I think the biggest thing about the Trump administration was it gave people – the freedom people felt more liberated to say things that other under uh, under even a Bush administration people would have felt like they needed to couch it in better rhetoric or like cleaner speech so it doesn't sound as um, you know awful as it truly is. And I think there's a lot of the stuff in this movie is just like people just openly saying ridiculous things or things that can easily be disproven. Even you know even. Um, I was struck watching it the second time how um, lazy the commitment was of the two guys to all this craziness that he spent. You know, he goes to their cabin, he spends like their their commitment to this craziness is so lazy, like it's so half-assed. They're like, "Yeah, Obama's going to go to jail. Oh, they'll probably kill yeah, Clinton." The, the Clintons are drinking the blood of childrens or of children, and it's just like, "Yeah, I've heard that." You know, it's not even like it's not a big deal at all. Yeah. They're not fervent. It's like really weird because like they're not even fervent yeah. about this. They they're not even trying to convince him. They're just like saying this. Like you know, I'd say to Scott, you know, man, the sun's nice to be out under, or like just like random statements that you don't feel like you have the <laughs> need to like argue for. Um, that's what makes the movie in some ways very weird. I think unintentionally. Um, I don't think they were planning to end up in a cabin with those two guys for five days when they started this movie. Yeah. I think that was kind of just COVID. <laughs> the fact that he yeah, did they really just meet him at the gas station. It was like, here's the next half hour of our movie. I met this guy at the gas station. But I mean, the fact that they're just like, yeah, sure. Come just live in my house for five days. However long it was just oh. like the strange man who is ordering fleshlights and all this. Like, it's crazy that that, that part is like the craziest part of it all to me that like I, he yeah. just lives with these people for like a week I, I need to know why they're living together are they just like best buddies forever and they're just yeah. living together <laughs> or it kind of looks like a honey lunch i don't know um but i i would say it, to go off that saying how passive they were because that it's not about you know activate as much as it's about passivity and um like complicity it's more you're just kind of allowing things to happen and not questioning and not judging because a lot of the jokes aren't you know the doctor or the cake lady, them like saying hateful things. They're kind of just letting Borat 
say horrible and hateful things and they're okay with it. It's just being out. That's why I, I, my theory is that this is like an anti anti cancel culture. This is like proof of why cancel culture matters because it's when we are being just allowing, you know, people to behave in whatever they want that makes us complicit. So I think Sasha Baron Cohen will say we have to speak out against the things we see and hold people accountable for the actions. And I think the way people behave in this is the proof of that. Yeah, I mean, like the the when he goes into the CPAC conference, like with Klan robes on, like that's the the worst to me of like pe- these people should be trying. Like I know that they're ultra conservatives, or whatever, but like still, these people should be trying to like punch his lights out for walking in the middle of a hotel lobby in these clan robes. And instead they just like have their phones out in there. I mean, yeah, that, that is, you know, he exposes that as much as, I mean, that's more of the surprising part than like Rudy Giuliani being weird towards this teenage <laughs> girl. Like that, that I think is, those are the people who really get exposed in a more surprising way. It's yeah. just like, it's shocking how many people don't care. Like they're yeah. not even like, okay, you don't want to punch him out. Where's your calling security? Like they barely look at him. He walks through in clan robes and there's like he's given as much of a look as any other person. Like there's almost no difference between him and somebody wearing a suit. Like this is completely normal. Um you brought up the Rudy Mullet. I think I made a claim a couple months ago that this is the most talked about movie of 2020. The most famous movie of 2020. Definitely seemed like that for the week it came out, or if like two weeks it came out. My argument is purely based on the fact that this is the only movie of the year that ended up as a hourly discussion topic on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. This is the only movie I've seen in arguably years that is consistently covered, um, you know, cable news discussion. And purely because you had you had the president's lawyer yeah. literally taking trying to take his pants off on a movie. And I think the most shocking thing about the scene is not even the fact he's trying to take his pants off. It's that somebody with a fake news service could get an interview with this guy with minimal amount of effort. That's like shocking. All news is fake news. Let's be clear. But yeah, no. And, and here's the thing. Like to me, look, I watched the scene. He's tucking his shirt in. Like I, I, I think he is. Like I think it's pretty clear from watching the scene. I, However, he should not have gone up to the room with her in the first place. That is the like the thing that we should really be indicting him for instead of getting in this like sort of pointless debate about it, oh was he sticking his hand down his pants to you know fair. do something unseemly or was he tucking his shirt? In? He went to a hotel room with this young girl. It's I mean, the general demeanor her. that he handles her with, too. There's a lot of, like, yeah. the leg touching and sweethearts and that stuff. Because I agree with Scott. Like, he's definitely, like, messing with his shirt. Because she was also, like, trying to get the, like, mic in there. They show that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. so, so it's part of it. But but it is the general. I mean, the movie does a lot with, like, the hypocrisy of um, America's idea of feminism. Especially the, like, Republican idea of what feminism. Because, like, feminists you see are all, like, the Republican women's groups. And they consider themselves like that. Um and the same idea that they can be professionals and journalists and make a deal, they can work and they can drive, but he also still exhibits his power and that he's, she, her primarily is like there to be, you know, cute and attractive to him. Um, and he still has like privilege over her. So it's, mm-hmm. which is the same thing within the debutante ball, right? They, they, oh, yeah. Been, yeah, that, that, that also the hypocrisy of, um, you know, our women are prized treasured and we, we, 
you know, value them, but let's not talk about periods and actually treat them like full human beings. What's and like what does like the the old guy say to him or whatever? They have like a little conversation or something. I forget exactly what they're talking oh, about, her, but then his daughter, Borat, just like his granddaughter or whatever, just pops off Bo- on him. Borat asks him, "How much do you think she's worth?" Yeah. And yeah. the guy goes, "Oh, about five hundred bucks." Five hundred yeah, bucks. Like and he that, goes, yeah. "Oh, nice." And then the girl just looks in, like, "I want to fucking slap you right now." It is. It is that scene is shocking because I think the thing that is set up to be the shocking moment is the period blood. But what really should be shocking to us is that this this concept exists at all. That there were like, it is the weirdest. It's like a bunch of creepy old dudes with like a bunch of you know, teen girls, and like yeah. the fact that we're you know that they were intent like that they're just set up to be shocked at the period blood, and not the fact that this um, disgusting like ridiculously outdated, um, you know idea which clearly dates to the back to the idea of marriage as a transfer of property between father and husband like that's mm-hmm. clearly what the basis of this this all is is like look i will show off my daughter look at her she's pure innocent and a virgin i will give her to you as property untouched property so that you know we can continue our um our male dominance in society yeah because we can all act in horror of how you know borat treats um, women as daughter keeping her in a cage and, and treating her not that her vagina is going to eat her or whatever but we need to acknowledge that we haven't evolved that much far past to it whether we want to believe it or not that there's still um a large concept in our society that treats women as you said like properties um and really not equal at all so have we moved far past his exaggerated version of misogyny I mean, that's the thing with Borat. Borat is, he is our worst things, just heightened and exaggerated. He is anti-Semitism that exists in society, heightened to a ridiculous point of like, oh, the Jews this, and we're going to write it on cakes, and we're going to have the running of the Jews. Like, he takes this to a ridiculous level when this is real stuff that exists in society that people feel and express, you know, on a daily, weekly basis, and sort of gets a slide by because they don't do it in an extreme way as Borat. It's how we often we'll look at different cultures and pinpoint you know their problems so we can ignore it within ourselves yeah let's talk about um maria bakalova who is i believe this is her first performance right just impressive yeah, so. scott thoughts on maria i mean look she's being talked about as a likely oscar candidate and i think to do that in a comedy I mean, it has to be very, you have to do something very impressive. And yeah, like I was noticing, or I was just like trying to pick up on more, some of the more like improv moments this time, right? Because it, it does rely on a lot of improv when you're having this real interaction with people and you don't know what's going to happen. And for her to be sort of as skilled at it as, um, as Sasha Baron Cohen is, I think is, is really impressive. Like in the plastic surgeon scene when they're in his office and, she he makes some comments about like her nose or something and she just like i mean improv probably or whatever is like oh well you give me like a jew nose or something like that you know just makes makes like a joke that is in line with the prejudices or whatever that we see throughout the movie um you know some of that may have been planned to some extent but i think coming up with that on the spot is like you know pretty pretty crafty and then i don't know just just some other moments like when the uh when the babysitter is like reading her the story and um she says like the babysitter's like oh this is just a story 
And she something about just the way she says a lot of like, yes, it's a true story um, is like, I don't know, really stood out to me as like, that was like a great, like natural moment. I feel like that she just kind of was able to channel. So, yeah, I mean, like, you know, her commitment to the the role is, is very impressive and um, you know, her willingness to go to these extreme links again, you know, that kind of, you know, that was the thing about, Sasha Baron Cohen in the first one is that, you know, you just were so amazed that he would go this far and run through the hotel naked and all this stuff. Um, and yeah, no, I, I think um, she's a very skilled comedian. I like, I, I, I question what, where her career will go from here. Right. Cause it just seems like this is the type of performance that it's like, it's hard to dissociate her from. Um, but, you know, I think it's, yeah, like this movie would not have worked nearly as well without the introduction of her. And I think, um, again, gets at that thematic cohesiveness that is is going on here, that we have a more relatable, like, character that we can connect to a little bit more um, and that, like, can teach Borat ultimately a lesson. Because I think, like, in the end, you know, sort of the, this movie is, feels a little bit more hopeful than the first movie. Um, and I think that like Tutar is part of the reason for that, because we see like, you know, she's able to convert Borat to some extent. And if Borat, right. Who like you're talking about is the most extreme version of all of our prejudices. If he can be converted, then so can anyone. Right. Or at least, you know, that's what I think the movie is wants us to believe. And that is some sort of light within the darkness that is a lot of the rest of the yeah, it's she's really impressive, and I, you know, does not have a background in comedy. Does not have a you know an improv background. Um, I looked up her credentials. She was like, she did drama school. She's a dramatic actress. That was her original work. Um, her arc, just like not only the um, the improv, but the physical performance of she goes from this like feral girl in you know Kazakhstan who's got crazy hair and you know. She she goes in a cage. She eats Johnny the monkey. She comes out. She goes through all these different makeovers. That scene with the um the sugar baby is hilarious. <laughs> is really is is really funny and in the weirdest way possible. I love. I mean, I think this is again one of Cohen's best things. He just exposes us to these things that we we sort of know exist, but we've never really thought about it in context. I don't think I've ever seen that. Like, of course, you know the idea of sugar daddy, sugar baby exists. But like, I don't think I'd ever thought of it in that context of like, this is an influencer and she's going to talk about how you're supposed to do it because this is the way to do it. Um, and then her just performance throughout the film is just amazing. I love the scene in particular after the babysitter's read of the story and they get in the car and she's just screaming at the babysitter. She's like, you can't drive the car. You're yeah. a man dressed as a woman. And then just that scene is really, she's really funny in that one. And then even um, when she gets up in the women's group to talk. And, you know, just so many or like when she goes and she's finally going to touch herself. So she like grips the railing in the bathroom because she thinks she's going to get her hand bit off. Um, there's just so many small physical moments where she's just really, really talented for somebody who is, um, you know, basically a novice in this, this area. I think there's a lot in her eyes because she you said you described her as feral. But I think she's also just like an, an innocent that, you know, ha hasn't she's been corrupted by the bad ideologies of her father in their society but still just like doesn't understand the world and the whole movie's about her um you know take take really taking in the world and evolving you know as a woman an idea so she everything is with these big open eyes and big open mouth and how she's reacting she reacts like a five-year-old and i think um 
makes it really believable for someone who is an adult. Um, make, um, it, it still comes out very natural, her responses, um, but also kind of endearing in a way, in a weird way. <laughs> um, so it's pretty remarkable and, and just watch your full evolution um, to going from that feral innocent to, you know, discovering an identity. And, and I think that can come off very, um, you know, blunt and quick and forced, um, but it, 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 she does make it work natural, her growth. It does seem like she could, she could have ended up in that place of being a journalist, even though she, you know, an hour ago, she was a fully fit feral <laughs> creature. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think I think it is remarkable. It is the like the fullest character arc that has been I think in any kind of Sasha Baron Cohen vehicle, and that's what makes it stuff. What do you guys think? What do you think is the future of her career? Like, is this the you know guy in the Killing Fields who comes out, does the one movie, gets the Oscar, and kind of disappears? Because I do think she legitimately has a shot at not only the nomination but the win, um, because she feels like the ingenue performance that they like to reward. Um, especially in the female acting categories. Do you, do you think that she has a career going forward? Is this kind of like her one big American splash and then she, you know, she goes back and she does stuff in, in Bulgaria? I mean, I hope that it doesn't end up like the people we were talking about at the start of the show, right? With like Kristen Wiig or somebody like that, right? Who has like this one really sort of explosive movie that um, people really love and that is just sort of a comedic tour de force and then kind of spends years after that trying to, recapture that high and not really doing it because there's nothing else really quite like these Borat movies that I think is going to be able to to channel her strengths like this. I did see some I did see the other day where she was cast in something though. Um yeah. somebody vamp and I'll look it up. I, I think she definitely will begin rules. I think she's gonna be a, a, a um wanted commodity. That's a horrible say. Everything you're saying but um she, she's gonna she's gonna get offers for real whether that leads to anything after that because sometimes people get offers and they're just not the right roles for her to evolve as a performer we'll see because as scott says what is her i got um, it i got it potential she, she's been cast yeah. in the um judd apatow pandemic inspired comedy the bubble with karen gillen and pedro pascal interesting right That's Weird cast <laughs> for a John Hepatol movie. Very weird cast. Pedro hey, Pascal is just going to be in everything now. So. Yeah. I mean, I feel like The Mandalorian has made him one of the most popular and just, you know. Sure. Yeah. Everybody, who yeah, doesn't he, like that guy now? He's a late, Game of Thrones. lean actor. He should take advantage. He's an older guy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not against it. Man's, favorite, man's awesome. That is a really weird cast. And I guess Apatow is kind of a good next step. If anyone can kind of yeah but user comedic talents pandemic comedy scares me because like, no, nobody <laughs> wants to watch these movies right now i honestly no. think the best bet would be for her to get a dramatic role especially if that's her best yeah. interest just to show that she's not one-sided or and we just described how comedy has not been kind to, to female actresses in the past decade um and like i don't i mean we need her but yeah and like melissa mccarthy like when she finally decided that she was going to do dramatic work, like she should have got the Oscar that year, in my opinion, for, for can you ever forgive me? And like, you know, uh, other people in that vein, even, even male comedians, right. When they decide to go down the dramatic role, uh, you know, dramatic path, it yeah. works. It really works. A lot of times, you know, you think about Robin Williams or, you know, even some of Steve Carell's dramatic work and um, yeah. you know, just pick, pick your poison. And I mean, Adam Sandler with uncut gems a couple of years ago, like, 
you know, these, these end up being their best performances. So if, yeah, if she can get ahead of the curve, right. If she can not lose a lot of her career trying to, yeah, like I said, recapture those comedic highs and maybe mm -hmm. take more of a left turn, then she might be in good shape. I do think the important lesson to learn from Melissa McCarthy is do not do a bunch of movies with your husband because that almost literally killed her career. Um, it's yeah. kind of sad to be honest. It's like, uh, it's not a fun thing to say. It's like, you really should never work with your husband because you've, it, he's never given you a good movie. Um, they're all really rough. I do think the interesting thing I would like to see from Bakalova is she's Bulgarian. I would like to see her work with a higher name director, but somebody who works in foreign language. Like, I think it would be, I think that might be the best um, place for her is just giving her the opportunity to act in her native language in, you know, I don't know, a Verhoeven or something, or just somebody who's willing to work with multiple languages. Because I do think, um, I, I'm interested to see how well she speaks English, because I know that Tutar obviously is an exaggeration of somebody who is learning English and, um, you know, kind of lacks uh, a traditional, like, grammar and, uh, you know, ability to speak natively. Um, so I wonder if she can do that and if that will work with an Apto. Because I do wonder if, like, is she going to become the comedy joke of a movie because of the way she speaks English and how it gets related back to Tutor? I'm with uh, Director Day, mainly because I think it can take advantage of her comedic talent, but in something more respected and dramatic, okay. dramatic which is Steven Soderbergh. Well, if she gets into Soderbergh, who make... There's plenty of opportunity. He makes like 10 movies a year. I was about to say, he makes three movies every year. So. <laughs> yeah, that certainly yeah. wouldn't hurt. That certainly wouldn't hurt. Yeah, I, I, another person I was kind of thinking of who like I don't want her to fall into the trap is like Elsie Fisher with 8th grade, right? Like what has she done since that movie came out? Like nothing. Texas and what, what Chainsaw Massacre remake. <laughs> 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 Susan, isn't yeah. she a Despicable Me or something? Yeah. <laughs> well, she, that was before. That was even before eighth grade, though. Yeah. Yeah. What I, is Elsie Fisher? I mean, I'm not really sure that she has much on the horizon. So I hope that that is not what is in the future for Maria Bakalova. Yeah, it's, it's always tough because that seems like a role that like just hit her at the right time and is more true to who she is. But Maria Bakalova is like an actual performance that is not her playing a version of herself. That's fair. Yeah. Oh, of course. Um. Elsie Fisher has done a movie that Zach and I already covered. What? The Adams I, Family. I Todd, yeah. That's the only movie okay, she's done. live action this? movie, yeah. <laughs> the Dark History of the Lucas and Zach podcast. Our least favorite movie we've ever covered. <laughs> and the best oh, episode, wow. so it's okay. It was, it, we were like, we were trying to find a, uh, an animated Halloween comedy to finish the end of the month off, and we are like, let's do this. We like The Adams Family, and do not ever watch yeah. the animated yeah. Adams Family, especially if you... It literally was just an entire month. It was literally just 30 minutes of us going, this is crap. Remember when that, that those really good movies from the 90s came out? Yeah. Well, we Oscar, just Isaac have, Oscar Isaac could have been a great Gomez if they so had good. done a live action movie. Yeah. But. I was so pumped for it. And I'm like, oh, wait, damn yeah. it. So it doesn't matter who right. plays it. To be fair, though, if Tim Burton did a live action version, that wasn't going to be good. No, it might be. No, it might I be. Don't, Honestly, don't, no. don't give up. There could have been something there. Nah. But you nah. think Barry Levinson, perfect director for Adam's family? We would have gotten Not Barry Levinson, Michael Sonnenfeld. Keaton. No, sorry, Sonnenfeld. Michael Keaton running around yelling, where's my elephant or something. <laughs> hey, 
We stand Dumbo in this house. So don't come out. Please, we, please. We do, no. we, we do not stand Dumbo. Dumbo is one of the worst of this, the, his, the his, his, enti- his entire livelihood is burning to the ground. This amusement park that he had built his life on is burning to the ground, and all he cares about is this stupid elephant. Oh, it drove me insane. But we won't go down can fly, there. and so can I. I'm not going to lie. I was so bored during that movie. I started, like, I was on my phone for half of it. I don't think That's I paid good. attention to me, me and past guest and owner of our podcast is our Montenegro are going to do a, a, a pod without you. That's it was, fine. It was so bad that the closing credits featured a song by my favorite band of all time, right? Arcade Fire. And I just walked out, like, before <laughs> I didn't even say to listen to it. I was like, no, I'm done. I like their version of... Uh, yeah, I do, too. I, also, I listen to it all the time, but I was not going to sit in the theater. <laughs> I also am a big original Dumbo fan, which is like a tight. I guess. I'm not. I'm not. Hey, that train song fucking rules. We need to bring it back. It needs to be on Disney soundtracks. <laughs> We've completely diverged from Borat, um, which I think is probably a good enough sign that. Uh, final thoughts, Zach. You got final thoughts on Borat subsequent movie film? Um, yes, because I we, we were so worried about Maria Bakalova's Oscar chances and future career, but really is like best important actress campaign starts right now for Janice Jones. I know it's not a performance and she's a real person, <laughs> uh, but she deserves it and we should hire her in all movies. Um the, the the empathy that she brings, you know, within her moments on screen is something that was so devoid in the rest of the movie. Um, it was just nice to have someone so heartfelt and naturally warm in there. And reading the backstory of hers, which is, you know, kind of heartbreaking, but also, um, I don't know, inspiring. Because she was like, I thought these was like a real girl going to be sold off in the marriage. And I just felt so horrible for him. And, and it, so it makes all her emotions in the film still come, and intentions come off, you know, so pure. Um, and well-intentioned. I, 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 those whole- scenes are the standout for me as any type of sunscreen. And the Holocaust survivor lady too. I mean, that scene is like, this isn't a Borat movie. Like, it's like it's <laughs> insane, but it's incredible scene. Yeah, yeah. He, he really helping treat you know empathetic people as the heroes that we really need. It's just people yeah. who express care for each other. Right. Uh, Scott, do you have final thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, like I said, I think I do think this movie is better than the first one. I mean, you could probably tell that. I think. Uh, I liked it maybe even a little bit more the second time. I to give a shout out to a couple of my favorite comedic moments, because I don't I haven't, you know, gotten to mention them yet, but just I don't know, some of the jokes that made me laugh the hardest. Um at the beginning, when he's going he he has this like monologue or whatever when he's still in Kazakhstan about like, you know, such and such was sent to America to destroy America or whatever. It's like and President Obama, and he's like and this led to other Africans being elected to, you know, high high authority positions in other countries. And they showed that photo of Justin Trudeau in blackface. <laughs> I had forgotten that joke was in the movie, and when I watched it this time, I just lost it. But and then the the like follow up on the dog, the bounty hunter thing, right? When they're in the parking lot outside the plastic surgery place, I think it is, and the car drives by and. And Tutar is like, there's a woman driving right there. And he's like, that's not a woman. That's Dog the Bounty Hunter. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think those mom- moments are hilarious. And there's some others, too. But, yeah, it's it's a funny movie. Like, I don't know whether it's funnier than the first one or not. But um, for, for all that it's saying, you know, underneath its comedy, I think it gets some good laughs, too. Which, and if I again, if I'm admitting that, then 
well, I'm not going to say then that means it's good. Like I'm some arbiter of taste because it's more that I have a very specific sense of humor. I think and only certain movies can can get it. But this movie did in moments, you know, cause me to actually vigorously laugh out loud. So, okay. Credit to that yeah. And then there's the great joke about um, strongman leaders like Kanye West and yeah. No, Kenneth West, right? Kenneth West, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, is a, there is a hilarious um, thing we have not touched on. I'll talk about it quickly, which is that there is the joke throughout the movie how the movie changes. So Johnny the Monkey, they're originally trying to send Johnny the Monkey, who is randomly like a minister and a porn actor, to they want to give him to America. And then they're going to give um, the daughter to Pence to give to Trump. And then they're like, okay, we can't get him, so we're going to give him to Rudy Giuliani. And there's the, the, there, is a, there is a good... Um, uh, fun joke when they're driving in the car and they're like, um, oh, can we give it to this person? No, that person's in jail. Can we give it to this person? No, that person's also in jail. That person's, oh, house arrest. You know, because you got to poke fun at the fact that, like, you know, half of the original uh, team for the Trump administration ended up, like, in prison by uh, mid-2018. Um, yeah. Uh, I think this movie is not as funny as the first, but I think it's more cohesive and in some ways works a lot better. Um, and honestly, really impressive to take what the original is kind of like a better version of Jackass, and then you come back around and you're like, wow, you actually made like a re legitimate like dramedy with Borat, the character? Like, I never thought that was ever going to happen. I totally thought going to this, this was going to be like, hey, look, Borat hasn't been around for years. Now look at Borat make the same jokes and run up to people on the subway. And because you, I think we do forget going back to the original one, there's the big scenes we remember, but in between that is a lot of. Borat trying to talk to people, Borat trying to kiss people on the cheeks in New York City, Borat trying to talk to people on the subway, all that like really kind of, um, it's funny, but it's not particularly complicated to be like, if you get into people's personal space in public, will you elicit a reaction? It's like, of course you'll elicit a reaction. Like you're trying to... the street, right? Yeah. Oh, exactly. It's like you're if you try to go kiss a man on the street in New York, you're yeah. going to get a reaction at some point. Um, yeah. Really fun movie. This was really fun to talk about. Uh, thank you, Scott, for coming on. Um, want to plug your podcast? Scott is a great podcast. You guys should listen. We have a, uh, the link yeah. down in the description as well. Yeah, it's called Some Like It, Scott. Um, we have an episode every week reviewing new movie. Um, this week we're doing a double episode for Judas and the Black Messiah and Malcolm and Marie. Um, we're reviewing both of those. Um, yeah, one of those is incredible, and the other one is also a movie. Um, but and just to be clear, then, guys, he's a really big fan of Malcolm Marie, and he yeah. really hates the Black Panthers, which is why yeah, he did not like yeah. the Black yeah. Of course, but uh, we also have our director countdown series that we uh, we do. Last year we did Nolan and Fincher. Um, our next one that we're going to be doing is not a director actually, but it's, we're doing James Bond um, in preparation for no time to die. Whenever it comes out um, <laughs> watching curated, I, I, I haven't seen most of the movies and curating it for my two co-hosts who have not seen most of them. Um, and so we're going to be watching like 10 movies, I think um, not all of them, obviously. So but, uh, assuming you're just skipping Roger more completely because no, we are going to – I mean, I actually think The Spy Who Loved Me, that is one of my favorite James Bond movies, to be honest with you. I think that's a, a great movie. Um, I will admit it's the – Roger Moore teaming up with uh, – I think she's Russian – female Russian agent um, is – and the first first movie with Jaws in it, I think that one's a lot of fun. But That's fair. Uh, we are starting with From Russia with Love because I think that's the one where, like, all of the hallmarks of Bond, yes. like, started rather than – Dr. No, which is, of course, the first one. But anyway, keep a lookout for that. Absolutely. In the meantime, we have some like it's got every week. So.
Yeah, I mean, this is gives me an excuse to rewatch Bond, which is always a good thing. Um, yeah, yeah, for much we love, it's real good. It's real good. Mm-hmm. Doctor No, um, I think I did not realize this. Everybody talked about the, the first movie. You have to watch that one. It is um, almost completely forgettable. It, it's exactly. fine. It's not terrible, but it, it has very little impact on the rest of the franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yeah. why I chose Promotion with Love first, yeah. Good move, good move. All right. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, we will have you Thanks. back on another episode when we find another movie that you are as interested to talk about as Borat too. Sure. And with that being said, uh, folks, we will be back next week to talk Wolfwalkers as we continue 2020 movies. Also, be on the lookout. There may be multiple too many um, bonus random episodes in your feeds. Uh, yeah. So don't Our be surprised what happens. a little too big and we're just going to constantly roll out shit. Now. <laughs> yeah, I know. We may be going insane. But I'm not going to tell you what's coming. It's be the minute an episode on Benjamin Button. Sorry to spare guys. No, we're not <laughs> I, I, I am. I am the executive producer of the show. I have <laughs> final choices. I will be doing zero episodes on Benjamin Button unless Zach pays me money. If you want to hear a Benjamin Button episode, we did it for our Fincher series on Sunlight and Scott. So there you go. See, that's right, plug. folks. You don't have to listen to Zach talk about this movie. Scott already did it. He's already. He's got the definitive Benjamin hey, Button episode. No, because mine's not one podcast. It's 180 podcasts and backwards <laughs> for. This is the worst plan ever. Um, the only thing worse is when I suggested we try to do all the Lake Placid movies, and Zach basically told me he would quit. I think I agreed <laughs> if you did Benjamin Button. I think you said you'd do one if you did if we had Benjamin Button. So I would get one 90-minute movie. Oh, no, for if you did Peter Pan month. <laughs> that was the deal. Yes, Zach is such an obsession. I don't know if you know this, Scott. Zach really wanted us to do Peter Pan month, which is a month that sounds like hell for my yeah. side. Easily could have been an episode on Wendy, the, the classic film Wendy, but it's a- <laughs> fun fact about Wendy. I went to the website, I turned Wendy on, I watched five seconds, and I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, What the hell is wrong with you? Why are you watching this movie? And then I turned it off and watched something else. All right, <laughs> the website, <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Well, I'm not, website. I want to protect people from Wendy, so I'm not going to tell you where you can watch Wendy. All, all, the best movies are, all the best movies are streaming for free on the official side of the movie, as we know. <laughs> I'm sure if you search wendymovie.com, you'll find wendymovie.com. Yeah. With that being said, folks, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Zach. We will see you next week. Not to get you too excited, but I know I promised one song. Don't worry, another one came up into my brain. Here we go. Quiet. I do it. Kathy, I said as we boarded a Greyhound in Pittsburgh. Michigan seems like a dream to me now. It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. I've gone to look for Lucas and Zach podcast. The Saginaw and I've gone, it's hard to tie it up.